couple of introductory words. I got really clear um, last year that one of the things that Gregory House definitely needed was more thinking on ethnicity, race, gospel. Um, and also we needed to hear, be hearing from more voices. Uh, we're still wanting to make sure we're hearing from more female voices. We're trying to build that in. That's not where I want it to be yet, but we're trying to strengthen that. And also be hearing from um, di different voices, uh, brothers and sisters with different ethnic backgrounds. And, and so as we kind of put that together, I thought, you know, where I really want to start um, is actually with the Jewish voice. And um, because I think that's a, that's a fundamental biblical reality that uh, honestly gets overlooked in our American experience as we're so aware of the black-white dynamic within our country and increasingly aware of the last few decades of the Latino-white um, and immigration questions surrounding that. But it also, also gets lost. And uh, five years ago, the Lord gave the gift to resurrection and to Catherine and me of bringing uh, Thomas Lisa Boehm to resurrection. And um, they're not the first uh, um, uh, Jewish believers in Yeshua to come to rest, but they're the first that have come in as they have with the kind of servant hearts and desire to learn from us as Gentiles in a Gentile community, and yet also very clear about their, their, their Jewish life, their Jewish heritage, their Jewish calling, and um, to be followers of, of Yeshua amidst, in this case, in this season, a Gentile community. So I've been in a real learning experience with uh, Thomas and and with the Bone family and as a resurrection. And so I thought, you know, where I really want to start is there. And then um, as I got to know Father Josh and realized that he's done a lot of his work, he's an Old Testament scholar um, as well as um, a parish priest, and he's done a lot of his work in this area. I just started getting excited that the Lord was putting something together for us where we could really begin a, a journey on this. And so that's what we're going to start today. Um, next week, um, Deacon John's going to be teaching into continued questions around scripture and ethnicity. And Pastor Michael's gonna come just talking about um, his experience of doing particularly um, as a black pastor, doing ministry within the black community, but also in building what, what he don't like wants to call a bridge. He likes to say the land masses are coming together um, as land masses are coming together with white and black church, kind of reflecting on his experience. And then uh, in two weeks, we'll have a chance to hear from Sebastian and Mimi um, in terms of their experience as uh, Latinos, uh, Mimi, a Latino immigrant, Latina immigrant, Sebastian, a missionary from Latin America to us, from South America, specifically East Chilean. Um, and John's also going to continue then with our theological teaching, um, looking especially at critical race theory and giving us just a, I mean, it's a massive topic. So it gives kind of an introduction and kind of thinking about the gospel through that. So a couple other thoughts on this. Um, I think this is one of the best places, A, Gregory House and B, our diocese, to have the kind of conversation that we're all longing to have, but you can hardly have in our country, um, which is we really want to have an honest, intellectually rigorous, um, relationally sensitive, but at the same time, honest dialogue about matters of ethnicity and how we think about it biblically and how we think about it in terms of the gospel. And, um, and we can hardly have that unless we set it up carefully. We, we provide some careful teaching that we can have response to, um, and then we can begin to engage that. So it is not my expectation that everyone in Gregory House is gonna agree with everything that's being taught. Um, I think that would be unusual. I'm not even sure that would be entirely healthy. Um, it's my expectation that we all agree 
on the Jerusalem Declaration. We all agree on our mission as a diocese. We all agree on the five S's. We all agree on our call to build a multi-ethnic family. That's my expectation. We all agree on that. So that actually means we can probably have some really dialogue and that will happen some within these, these, these three weeks. And I think it's gonna happen beyond that, right? It's gonna happen, and I, I can just see you all saying, hey, Father Josh, could I get a half hour conversation with you about this? Or Dr. Bone, could I follow up with you about this? And I think that would be really good. Or you notice other folks asking similar questions and so you put together a chat or whatever it might look like. Um, I would just would strongly encourage that. Now, you know I'm going to strongly encourage it to happen as much by Zoom and, when appropriate, face-to-face. Um, I won't be having face-to-face with you until uh, 10 more days are over, but um, once I'm out of quarantine, I'd love to. Um, but as much as possible, you know, in a Zoom or a FaceTime format, let's do as little of it as possible uh, via, um, you know, social media or, um, you know, even email. Um, but I'm just thrilled about this. I'm also thrilled this is coming on the heels of our immersion day. Uh, on Friday that we had, um, in part, 50 of us had as leaders uh, that was planned to be up in Minnesota this weekend. I'm assuming that's probably been postponed. Bo, Molly, yeah. 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 Um, but, we'll, but that'll happen. And, um, and so um, we're all entering into this. This is just incredible. And um, that's going to mean that it's going to have some messy moments um, and have some challenging moments. But I'd way rather have that than not have this conversation and not learn biblically uh, you know, how we move forward in this. So let me pray for us. And then Dr. Boehm, I'm going to, I'm going to hand off to you, uh, my dear brother. So, um, am I going first? I thought, uh, I thought Josh, was Josh first. Josh, are you first? I think I am. Okay, good. Yeah. I'm going to hand off to Josh and then we'll hand off to Tommy. Um, yeah, great. Tommy, my brother from a Jewish mother, I'd like to say, and man, do I love his Jewish mother. Um, so anyway, let me pray for us. Uh, Father in heaven, we're just so glad that you've given us the church where real dialogue and real um, consideration of the biblical text can be deeply considered. Lord, we want to be more than anything else as Anglicans fully scriptural. And we want all the blessings that come from obeying the Bible. We also, Lord, want to understand the Bible more deeply, and we thank you that it is a text that, that can never be fully plumbed. There's always new things to learn. We thank you for scholars um, like Father Josh, Dr. Bowen, who have given significant commitment to the ardor, ardor of learning and of helping us understand. So we bless them on this day, and we pray all these things in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. Um, just one one quick note here before um, Dr. Moon, before you get going. Um, so, if Josh, if you wouldn't mind giving like a little context and introduction, and then Thomas, when you start your teaching, also just because we're bringing together North and South and making sure we get to know each other. Unless at length intros were done already and I missed it, but um, and then Christina is going to kind of be our timekeeper and make sure we kind of move along, and so. Um, at 10.30, that's when we'll switch, but I might not be on the call, depending on my boys at that point, so I just wanted to make sure Christina knew that piece, too, to kind of move us through to the next session, but thank Amy, you. Would it, would it work for us to go till 10.40, just because I, I took some time to give a, an update on my COVID, sure. and, and that way... Yeah, we'll give you your time back, time. Josh. <laughs> yes, that's great. Thank you. All right. Over to you, Jeff. All right. Thanks, Amy. Um, 
Yeah, so my name is Joshua Moon. Um, you'll, I'm here in Minneapolis, and I spent a number of years as a pastor in a Presbyterian context. Uh, my PhD is in the book of Jeremiah. I actually study Old Covenant, New Covenant. So Jeremiah's New Covenant, some history of interpretation um, in the Western church, particularly um, in the Augustinian traditions. And then um, kind of an exegetical study of it as well in dialogue with that. So uh, these are things, the stuff I'm going to talk about here, I'm very passionate about. Uh, some of the later stuff with uh, Michael Wright, I'm also very passionate about. My family, I'm going to talk about a little bit about the adoption of our, that we have adopted two children. We have two children who are with the Lord and two that are with us. And the two with us are through adoption and we're deeply grateful for that. Um, and they're African-American, they're black, raising two black children in the United States right now. And that's has its own layers of interest. And, um, and so anyway, uh, but I wanna jump in because there's a lot that I wanna talk about and I'm very passionate about some of this stuff in particular, uh, kind of the, for me, the final implication that we'll get to, I hope if we have the time, uh, and the the whole of scripture um, coming to life for us, kind of. Uh, uh, but I hesitate a little bit this morning because I'm afraid it's going to come out as a fire hose, and I don't like that. I don't want that. Partly that's because what I'm going to be doing, I'm warning you here, is challenging a paradigm that, in my experience, at least most of you uh, hold, and have possibly never heard anything other. And I grew up with that paradigm. I'll talk a bit about it. And I know that just having a paradigm challenged a bit automatically makes it feel like a fire hose. And what I'm hoping is we have some time for good conversation and even more that it leaves you uh, wanting, wanting to study some of these questions deeper um, and wrestle with some of these things. Uh, originally, I had a very I had a much more staged, kind of gentle presentation, um, and Dr. Boehm challenged, gently challenged me to be bold. So I'm going to be bold here, um, <laughs> which doesn't mean he's going to agree with everything I say. I have no idea, but uh, there we go. All right, I'm going to try to share. All right, is this working? All right. Is that up there? Are you seeing? Yes, okay. Um, now, when I was young, I loved a film that now I'm sure is very dated. I haven't dared to watch it since I was a kid called Dead Poet Society. Some of you uh, closer to my age probably know that. It's a story of teenage angst, and I had a lot of teenage angst, so I associated with it, um, about a group of students who through the patience and ingenuity of a caring teacher began to love poetry. And that was a means by which they were able to find uh, some level of peace and community in the world. But there's a famous scene in the book, in the movie, where the teacher has the students all open their textbooks on poetry and turn to a particular page that's supposed to teach them how to understand and analyze a poem. And of course, if you've seen the movie, you'll remember the scene. He tells them, now tear out the page. Everybody stands 
uh, hesitant until, of course, one student, a bit more of the rebellious type, goes ahead and rips it out, and then the whole uh, classroom, because it's the idea of a high school student being able to rip out a page of their textbook in class is uh, a very fun idea. Uh, well, there's a page in our Bibles, uh, one page between Genesis 1 and Revelation 22 that doesn't belong there. And I would actually love for you to rip it out at some point, uh, not metaphorically, uh, but literally as a symbol. We're Anglicans. We love symbols that embody realities. Um, it's a page that's not only in no form Holy Scripture, but it's done a lot of harm. And by publishers, in my view, continuing the goal of putting it in there as though it had the imprimatur of heaven continues some of the harm that it does. So of course, that page separates Malachi from Matthew. In big, bold letters, the New Testament. Uh, it gives this unjust impression that when you're turning from Malachi to Matthew, you're crossing over some great frontier. That now you are about something else. Now you are to read it differently. All of these things are in this one little page. That was old. Now, now, the new. And the consequences of what that page has done um, are far-reaching. The way of dividing up Holy Scripture into Old Testament, New Testament, uh, comes from a fellow named Melito of Sardis. Now, Melito was a poet and a bishop. He was called a prophet by some later theologians. But at the heart of Melito's most famous sermon called On Pascha lies a way of telling the story of Israel and the church. And Melito is not subtle in the way he tells the story. He follows just about a generation after Marcion, a uh, more famous heretic, in proposing, not, Melito wasn't a heretic, but Marcion was a famous heretic uh, and famous for proposing, uh, as the story is often told, a kind of a rebuttal of what he called the Jewish God, the God of the Hebrew scriptures and so on. But unlike Marcion, Melito tries to tell the story so that we don't have to disown Israel outright. Instead, what we do is tell the story so that Christians are now the glory compared to the shadow of Israel. Uh, so this is how he puts it. The people, speaking of Israel, was precious before the church arose. And the law was marvelous before the gospel was elucidated. But when the church arose and the gospel took precedence, the type was made void, conceding its power to the reality. The people was made void, emptied, when the church arose. Uh, now, throughout this poem, Melito has a lot of wonderful and beautifully penned true things. But often what he does, even with a lot of the true things, is he uses them to tell a particular story about Israel and the church. You can see the identity language inherent here in this. The church has a superiority over unfaithful Israel, those people who are responsible, he says, for crucifying Christ. Oh, Israel, at one point, what have you done, he says. Now, it's one thing to have this kind of thought from maybe a Jeremiah who's speaking to Israel herself, lamenting, calling to repentance. That's not what Melito is doing. He's preaching a sermon to the church about her identity over against those people down the road who crucified Jesus. 
It's not a lament for sin, but a cutting off of Israel as those who did this great evil. Uh, this way of talking is not confined to the one text from Alito. He also composed a dialogue, supposedly with a Jew, in the, literarily with the Jew, but it was written for a Christian audience. And this is the summary of one scholar written to reinforce a Christian readership in its belief that it had superseded the Mosaic law and supplanted Judaism as the new Israel. So it's called replacement theology. Some of you have heard this language or supersessionism or goes under lots of different ways. Um, we're used to maybe hearing about Marcion's dis disdain for the Hebrew scriptures. Um, but I think sometimes we imagine the responses to Marcion were this robust, no, that's our heritage. We will not lose that. When in reality, most of the responses to Marcion were coming from people that, like Marcion, didn't really want to be associated with the Jews either. And so trying to find some way. Again, uh, here's one scholar's kind of passing comment that the Christian refutation of Marcion was achieved only at the cost of a systematic denigration of the Jews, who became the scapegoats in justifying retention of the Old Testament, has been often enough pointed out. And she goes on. Well, in my experience, it's not been pointed out often enough <laughs> that the way in which we responded to Marcion was too often something like Melito. Well, no, we need to keep that, but we will keep it as the shadow. We will keep it as the foil, as the scapegoat. This was especially popular in the fourth century, where it really blossomed in Christian discourse. Uh, we could talk here about St. Ambrose, who sponsored and then praised the burning of a prominent synagogue in Milan, cloaking it all with theological language. Uh, but I want to talk more about John Chrysostom because he was uh, the most influential, I think, to tell the story of Israel and the church this way in the fourth century. If you want a straightforward instance of kind of a pure anti-Semitism that was cloaked in Christian language, read his treatise against the Jews. Uh, it's a series of eight sermons. Uh, the translators of the modern edition of it, uh, both in the introduction and even in the title, try to soften the book. They call it, the new title is Discourses Against Judaizing Christians. Uh, he called it against the Jews, right? But the sneers, the meanness, and the ugliness of that book is outstanding, especially for a man whose writings became thoroughly influential, especially his way of reading the book of Hebrews, which broke with earlier ways of reading Hebrews, but has shaped the way Christians have read Hebrews as about superiority of Christian practices over against those old dead things of the Jews. It was John Chrysostom who solidified and made popular that way of reading Hebrews. I'm speaking strongly about uh, St. John here, uh, St. John Chrysostom, but here's another scholar so you know it's not just me. Um, I'll let you guys, but. He speaks with a bitterness and lack of restraint unusual even in that place and century. No sneer too mean, no jibe too bitter for him to fling at the Jewish people. No text too remote to be able to be twisted to their confusion. No argument too casuistical, no blasphemy too startling for him to employ. 
And then at the end, he turns to the Christians, and in words full of sympathy and toleration, he urges them not to be too hard on those who have erred in following Jewish practices or visiting Jewish synagogues. And then the conclusion, of course, um, about forgiveness. It really is a striking set of discourses, and it makes you reread John Chrysostom and the immense influence that he held in the Eastern Church, but also the Western through his commentaries. Uh, I think it should make us rethink some of this. Or we could take another of the more influential Eastern fathers, St. Hilary. St. Hilary was so orthodox, one scholar writes, that he would not even answer the salutation of a Jew on the street. He said hi, he wouldn't even respond. One of his quotes, St. Hilary says in one of his sermons, the Jews were possessed of an unclean devil, which the law for a time drove out, but which returned immediately after their rejection of Christ. So these consistent ways of talking, of framing the story, of the Judaizing of Christianity, warning against it. Now, there's a reason they had to, right? So we can look at the backside of John Chrysostom having to talk this way, because still in the fourth century, there were lots of Christians who loved being with and being apart and saw themselves in various ways as tied to the life of Israel and the practices of the Jewish people, or he wouldn't have to say these kinds of things. Um, but this stuff, especially in the fourth century, became the standard Christian response. So that at a Carthage uh, council, they even determined that if a Christian, if you sat at a Shabbat meal, you would be expelled from the church, according to a council at Carthage. Israel's role was reduced to the bin, to the polemics, to the old, to the unfaithful. They blew their chance and got cast out. And now our job is to despise them from our lofty place. This hasn't disappeared, even, in, uh, even if it's in less overt form sometimes. I want to give you one modern influential New Testament scholar um, who in lots of ways is on our team. He's a believer in Jesus, who loves Jesus, and wants theology to shape the practice of the church's readings. And <laughs> I, he's kind of my exact counterpoint on some of these things. So this is from his book, Text and Truth. Uh, scriptural authorities talking with disdain about those of us who think that the voice of the Hebrew scriptures ought to be heard as it is. Scriptural authority is, as it were, spread evenly in this view across this flat surface. And the church is no less obliged to confess God as Yahweh God of our fathers who delivered us from slavery in Egypt than it is to confess him as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He expects his readers to think that that's absurd, right? So, so thorough is that approach, that story, that he thinks we would read that and find that idea absurd. He keeps going, if followed through consistently, this view of scriptural authority would lead to a radical Judaizing of Christianity. Those key terms again. Characterized, for example, by the expansion of the creeds to include the great events of Old Testament salvation history and by the incorporation of the Jewish feasts within the Christian liturgical year. Now, let's ignore for the moment that the main Jewish feasts are already part of the calendar, right? Easter, Passover, Pentecost, 
these, the main feasts that determine our identity as the Church of Jesus Christ take shape not from Christian borrowing, but as the church, the ecclesia, the kahal, the, con the community, continuing to do what had already been done by centuries by their fathers and forefathers, feasting and celebrating the works of God on these particular weeks. So let's just, let's ignore that, uh, that Watson uh, forgets that. What I want to do is confront this idea that he finds it absurd or laughable or obviously problematic that the church should confess God as the God of our fathers who delivered us from Egypt. And the us here is important. Uh, I want to recover the glory of what it means to be Israel. That's what I want to do. But I can't do everything about it and solve all the questions about it. There are practices of reading the Bible that have been shaped by replacement theology, and it would be great to go through every text one at a time. Uh, ufta, right, as they say here in Minnesota, that would take a while. So what I want instead is just to try to re-engage our imaginations, to try to tell different stories about Jew-Gentile and what that means. And then we are going to hopefully get to some implications and why this does, I think, directly address issues of um, kind of the racism uh, that has uh, evolved over, here's the key, over the Western European churches, white churches imagination that it is the central character in God's dealings with the world. That's how she imagines herself and others as derivative from her. Um, I'm going to confront some of that here. Um, but I grew up with an imagination kind of at odds with itself, right? loved the whole of scripture. It was entirely breathed out by God. It all had authority. God was the one speaking it. Uh, the whole thing was good and beautiful, except I didn't really. <laughs> uh, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, most of Exodus and Numbers. Uh, I didn't understand the prophets, but that didn't bother me too much. The law, I felt like I understood, and I felt like I didn't love and wasn't supposed to love. I didn't know what to do with the psalmist declaring so artlessly, so repeatedly, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, how beautiful is your Torah, Lord. Well, I didn't really think so. The law was death, right? The law brought death. It was that old way of things. It was burdensome. I'm so glad to be free of that. It was Jewish. I'm Christian, right? I never articulated all the tensions involved in that kind of thing. Um, I just ignored them, held out a reading of Paul in one hand and plugged my ear with the other <laughs> and kept going. Uh, I want to confront that way of reading and to offer what I hope, what I think is a better way. And here's the bumper sticker. I put it on the handout because it's it's an exhausting sentence. The triune God bound himself to his people Israel. And on account of the messianic work of Jesus of Yeshua brought to bear through the work of the Holy Spirit, we who are Gentiles by birth have been called into the honor of participating in that glorious identity of Israel. As Gentiles, we remain Gentiles who get to participate somehow we get adopted into the family that Israel's already a part of. 
All right, so that's what I'm going to be arguing. Uh, you could see that's a pretty thoroughgoing anti-replacement approach, I hope, um, but we'll see. So I want to start by reimagining the story of Israel. I want to walk into the dilemma with this seemingly innocent question. We walk up to Simon Peter, some decades into his ministry, let's say he's already in Rome, maybe just before his martyrdom. And I want you to imagine walking up to him and saying, Father Shimon, are you Jewish or Christian? <laughs> right? How do you imagine he'd answer that question? I think he would look at you just bewildered, absolutely bewildered. Um, not because one is ethnic and the other religious. Oh, well, I'm Jewish ethnically, but I'm religiously Christian. To be Jewish was, is it ethnic or religious, right? Temple worship, was that ethnic or religious? Because that actually had to shape the rest of your life to be clean, to be able to go to temple worship. Being circumcised, is that ethnic or religious? The promises to Abraham, is that ethnic or religious? It's the kind of distinction inherited by the Enlightenment's privatizing of religion. And so we think, oh, well, that one is ethnic, the others both have to do with the entirety of your life, with who you are. They are identity terms. For a long time, there's been this narrative about the first Christians that's become second nature to most ways of imagining our history as the Gentile church. We think of the earliest believers, we acknowledge that they were Jewish, because we have to, uh, but they quickly became Christians, we think. You hear that shift, right? And the narrative is simple. At some point, they, like Paul, had the scales removed from their eyes and made a sudden definitive break with that old way of things and were brought into a new religious life. They found the true meaning of Torah, not in Judaism, but in Christianity. They self-consciously broke free from the old, embraced the superior life and practices of the church, and the world was never the same. The problem with that is it's not anywhere true. <laughs> we have literally not one single instance of that occurring in the first century. Not one. Those who were Jewish and came to believe that Yeshua was the Messiah, the Mashiach, they kept the law. They kept ritual law, not just the Ten Commandments. They kept ritual law with the baptism, the washings, and sacrifices at the temple. In fact, it would have been a lot easier for everyone in some ways if they had, like some Jews before them, just broken with everything that came before, out of a protest, out of walking into something new. But they didn't. They refused to do so which is where the problems in some ways would come for them. We read back into our Bibles this story from Marcion or from Melito or John Chrysostom, this way of reading that wants to separate the church and say, ah, there's that break. Now we can look down. That was just shadow or whatever it might be. The apostles didn't stop worshiping at the temple, which we have to remember that would have involved all the ritual realities around it. Not just offering sacrifices, but the cleansings that had to go in. All of the ritual laws were, in some ways, shaped around the tabernacle and the temple. So to continue worship at the temple was to give yourself to the life of Torah, 
the church in Jerusalem continued worshiping at the temple until the temple's destruction in 70 AD with no qualms about it, right? We read Peter and John went to the temple for prayer at the hour of prayer in the book of Acts, right? We read right over that and they meet the crippled man and, you know, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have you by thee. And we sing along with it, right? Uh, the amazing thing is the healing. The thing that Luke in recording it doesn't even bat his eye, they were going to the temple for sacrificial worship. So think again of the insistence at Carthage that if you so much as set a Shabbat meal, you are expelled. And now put that in dialogue with the apostles and the practices of the church. Paul himself continued to worship at the temple anytime he was in Jerusalem. He tells us explicitly that he had made a vow and needed to go to Jerusalem to the temple to fulfill it. That is, there were sacrifices that Torah required of him. And that's what he was going to go do. He had no idea. There's no hint of, but that's the old stuff that doesn't really count anymore. There's not a hint of that. So Paul, are you Jewish or are you Christian, right? <laughs> what are you talking about, I think is the right response. We need to purge that story by remembering the older story of who Israel is. Um, John Chrysostom offers his way of imagining the story. I'm going to tell the story, um, and I don't mean it to be disrespectful to uh, a particular bishop, not our bishop. Um, but John Chrysostom gets that way by compiling largely a whole bunch of quotes from the prophets and what uh, John in his gospel says about, quote, the Jews and so on, and he puts them all together. And then once you put them together, then you put them in front of people and say, behold the man, right? Um, you have lots of reasons for feeling superior. Now you can find a lot in the prophets, but I wanna tell this story as another way of framing that dynamic. I was a PhD student in England um, saturated at this point in Jeremiah. And I went for a Christmas Eve service with some friends to Gloucester Cathedral. It's a large, beautiful, historic church about a half hour from Oxford. And it was this perfect Harry Potter type of English night, right? It's cold, but not like Minnesota cold. Um, everybody's dressed up and excited. The carols were beautiful and lovely. And the cathedral was packed, right? thousands of people crammed into this beautiful stone cathedral. And it was, my heart felt filled until the bishop got up to preach. And here, this one time of year where he has all of these people who are there, and his sermon is about the glory of Christmas because it reminds us to be nice to one another to show kindness in small things, even when it feels like the world is set against us. The undying hope of Christmas is that we can keep being kind even in a dark world. That's what he said. I, I, my jaw was on the floor. And like I said, I've been soaking myself in Jeremiah at this point. And that temple sermon of Jeremiah <laughs> kept coming in. All of Jeremiah's preaching. You preach and heal 
the wounds of this people lightly, saying peace, peace, when there is no peace, right? All of this is flooding in, and my, the blood is pumping, and it was my wife who stopped me from confronting this bishop on the steps of his own cathedral in front of everyone, um, because I was furious. I was furious, right? Here was a whole crowd of people desperately needing to hear the glory of what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. And this shepherd of the sheep could do no better than to tell them, keep on trying to be nice as you walk comfortably towards divine judgment. Now I tell you that story, uh, partly because it still makes me angry, <laughs> uh, but it's exactly the kind of thing the prophets get angry about. In that moment, I was not angry about being Christian. I was angry that that man was betraying what it was to be Christian and to be a shepherd of Christ's sheep. In other words, Chrysostom was wrong to read the prophets as he did. The prophets speak the way they do because of the glory of who, what it is to be Israel. And here are people who are betraying everything that that means. And we see it how often in the church now, right? So I want to sit with this text as our first one, because I love uh, lots of it. It comes from the prophet Isaiah. You can see the identity language in it, right? The family I brought up, right? Being the family and household of God, that's not new to Paul. <laughs> he learned that language from the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, the term is mishpacha, the family. Um, and of all the families, the mishpachot, of all the families of the earth, you only have I known. That's why I punish you. That's why I'm coming in and confronting you. It is because of the glory of who you are that I'm confronting you here. We could choose a hundred texts to make the point. But again, do you see that it's about the betrayal? of who you are as Israel that's at stake here. Here's the more positive dynamic of the same point from uh, the book of Isaiah, sorry. Um, and as for you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, offspring of Abraham, Zerah, seed of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth, whom I called from its farthest corner, saying, you are my servant. Right? I have not cast you off. I will be with you. Right? Again, this is the positive of the exact same point that Amos is making. It's, it's the glory of who you are as Israel that's the central thing. It's a particularity here. There is a particular choosing of Israel. And then they are called to live according to the calling to which they have been called. Again, Paul didn't make up that idea. <laughs> That's Moses. Live according to the calling to which you have been called. And we could protest God choosing Israel. You know, That's not fair. God should choose everybody on the playground equally at the same moment. Um, he at least hand out participation ribbons or something. Um, and we can talk about why I don't think it is unjust for God to have done that. But we need to sit in the humility that God chose Israel, and that was its glory. 
that is its glory, I mean to say. Our world talks a lot about socially constructed identities, uh, but this is what I want to call a theologically constructed identity. Israel is given an identity by virtue of the work of God. He imposes an identity upon Israel. Uh, to be Israel is determined by what God did. God bound himself to Abraham and his offspring forever. And of course, uh, so the glory of being a son of Israel or offspring of Abraham is that I grow up inside this promise of God, this binding of the covenant. I will be your God, you, are, you will be my people, right? You grow up within that. That's what determines everything else. You're circumcised early on, and I love being Anglican, right? Uh, symbols of this sort, sacramental symbols, they express what is real. They, they don't stand in for what's not present. They embody what actually is there. It is the promise of God, and I grow up my whole life learning to grow into where I am, who I am, because of the work of God on my behalf. Right? It's not an abstract religion. It's life lived inside this reality that God has bound himself to me, to this people. Uh, in an otherwise problematic, frustrating book by Hermann Schultz, uh, there's one little gem uh, that I pull out of there. And I love this framing because it's, it's the kind of thing we're used to thinking of, well, that's Christian. <laughs> Israelite finds himself placed by birth and circumcision in a circle well-pleasing to God, right? Finds himself there is taught that that's where he is. He doesn't have to win for himself by a sinlessness the law knower requires of him, a relation to God that's void of reproach. He doesn't have to merit salvation by earnest efforts of self-denial, deeds of high endeavor. All that is required and all that the righteous uh, among this people ever show is in truth and active faith. To surrender himself wholly and unreservedly to the Redeemer of Israel as his God to accept the salvation embodied in the covenant, right? If he says, you are my people, that's salvation. That's salvation. To acknowledge and love the ordinances of life revealed in the covenant as the ordinances of redemption, all this is what makes a true Israelite. <laughs> Does that sound a pretty good summary? Are you Jewish or Christian, right? Uh, this is life lived within that wonderful circle. You learn the Shema as your first utterance, and you live into it your whole life until it becomes the last thing you say on your deathbed, because it is such a good thing to belong to the Lord our God. To be Israel is to live within this reality of God's saving work. Whether you betray it or not, whether your generation betrays it or not, whether you're a bishop and you betray it or not, doesn't change the glory of what it actually means to be Israel a theologically constructed identity. God has marked you out, the holiness of Israel, right? John Webster, in a beautiful book on holiness, uh, it's just called Holiness, uh, makes the argument that holiness just is to exist within the presence of the triune God's saving work, to be inside where God's save, the triune God's saving work exists. Well, that's where you grew up. 
That's where you lived as Israel. That's what it meant to be Israel. It's a glory. And you had to live according to the calling to which you were called because sin and death, the Lord hates sin and death. You are marked and sealed as Christ's own forever. One of my favorite rubrics in our liturgical life. You are marked and sealed as Christ's own forever. One that could hardly be improved on for the role circumcision was to play for Israel. Right? Marked, sealed as his forever. Um, all right. I'm, I'm going to have to skip a bit here because we're running out of time. Uh, I was going to say, so election for Israel, on the one hand, it's not a mechanical thing, just biological. This is important for the ethnicity. It was about the line of the promise, right? Jacob and Esau were twins. They were children of Abraham by flesh. And yet Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So it's not this mechanical, it's just a matter of seed. Um, and so, uh, oh, wait, sorry, that's getting ahead of us. Ignore the screen. Um, uh, so one scholar says, in biblical perspective, Israel begins not with a people in their experience, but with the call of God. Living out the identity of Israel means living into that story. So election's not this mechanical, it has to go through just, well, uh, biology. There you go. That's true. Genesis is very blunt about that. Moses had a Cushite wife, right? That's modern-day Sudan. Uh, people already famed in the ancient world for being a rich, dark color. Joseph's wife was Asenat. She's African, Egyptian. You don't find a more Egyptian name than Asenat, right? Uh, so the two tribes from their marriage were already at the outset half Egyptian in their ethnicity, as we would say, and no doubt looked like it, right? From the beginning of Israel's life, that was already true. So, uh, yes, yes, it's not mechanical. Paul, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named, Paul says. Yes, no question about it. And yet, it's Jacob, not Esau, yes, but it's still Jacob. It's Isaac and not Ishmael, but it's still Isaac, right? Uh, it's still within that line. So even if we are to say the determinant thing is election, divine act of choosing, yes, and he chose within that line. Paul doesn't say, therefore, the line of Abraham doesn't matter. He's saying it matters precisely because that is where the promise of God is traced. And the Yeshua is the son of David. And that frames the entire rest of the letter to the Romans. We can't say... It's theological construction of identity, so therefore history, particularity, ethnicity, all these things don't matter. Uh, they do. They do matter. God chose the particular people in their particularity and chose them as his own, right? All right, I'm going to actually skip the Missio Dei section here um, because it's not, uh, it's not very controversial. Israel's chosen, God chose the particularity for the sake of the whole, but it still maintains its particularity within it, right? Already in Genesis 12, so that you will be a blessing to Abram. Um, one of my favorite ways of this is in Psalm, right? Taking the Aaronic blessing, which is still my favorite benediction for people. Uh, the Lord be gracious to us. 
and bless us, make his face to shine upon us so that, right? All of Israel's life actually was for the sake of the nations, but it was to be its particularity, its holiness that served the nations. Um, so we could talk more about that, but I'm going to skip it and we're going to go down. Uh, uh, oh yeah, whoops, there we go. There's the last part of the phrase, <laughs> if you're wondering what I was talking about. All right, there it is. So that. Uh, um, it's this glory that we get to participate in as Gentiles because of the messianic work of Jesus. I want to use, give you two words because the words we use are really important for negotiating. We don't crash on the shoals of trying to have this dialogue of Jew-Gentile. So two words for framing this. The first is the word participation. I'm borrowing this from theology and language and Christology, talking about the person of Jesus um, and sharing in God's identity is one of the most common ways nowadays of talking about the ways in which Jesus is honored as fully God in the apostolic writings, uh, both in his person, in the names given to him, in his works, he is seen to be sharing the identity, participating in the identity of the Godhead. When Jesus participates in the identity of the Godhead, he's not thereby displacing God the Father, right? That's not what we're talking about. So when I say we get, we are brought in to participate, it's not then displacing or replacing, right? This comes across, I love it, in 1 Peter, and it's as blunt as you get anywhere. Uh, I'll challenge you to read 1 Peter again uh, with this way of thinking in mind, uh, both in the ways he talks about the church, the calls he gives to the church, the ease with which he just says, look, the Lord your God is holy, so you need to be holy. And he's talking to Gentiles, right? So this very famous uh, compilation, this is an identity. He's telling, reminding us of our identity, but he's talking to a largely Gentile, some Jewish, some Gentile, but certainly mixed uh, group of believers. And these are all... <laughs> just taking things that were particular for Israel and particular and giving them a chosen lineage that's often translated race. That is not, it's not in the modern construct of race, that race language of talk more about this. It doesn't exist. Race doesn't exist. Um, genos is the Greek, but it's the, you are a chosen lineage. Oh, that's Israel. A royal priesthood, that's Israel. Priesthood of believers is like new to First Peter. That's Exodus 19. Uh, a holy nation. Who's the holy nation? A people for his own possession. Key term there. To show the excellence of the one who called you. That's Isaiah. Out of darkness. into light. Uh, everything is just about Israel, except this quotation from Hosea 1 and 2. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. Also of Israel, but... Uh, here he's using it like Paul does to show the inclusion. What a glory. You weren't that. You weren't all these things that I just said, but now you are. Now that doesn't push Israel out. What it does is say, look, you Gentiles are getting to participate in something that is far older than you are. 
right? So participation, that's the first word I wanna use. Uh, the second I wanna do uh, is the language of adoption. Um, I don't, well, well, we'll get back to this. The language of adoption, I have two adopted children, like I mentioned. They are both very much my children. The adoption of our daughter, who was second, in no way invalidated, qualified, replaced, made her superior to the adoption of our first son, Judah. In fact, if they were old enough, it would have been both natural and good for her to go up to her older brother and say, uh, how do I navigate this whole being a moon? <laughs> this is kind of weird for me. Uh, how do I do this? We would have said, yeah, that's perfectly natural. And it would have been natural and good and right, as it was in our case, for Judah to say, how wonderful. I have a new sibling in this family. Uh, a point that emerges time and again in the Gospels is that's not the dynamic that happened. <laughs> there were some within Israel who were not all that grateful or happy about the inclusion of a prodigal brother. Uh, but we're grafted, as Paul language from Romans 11, the tree into which we're grafted is Israel. The tree is Israel. He uses the language of olive tree, which is throughout the prophets. Our Lord, in his own parables, uses the image of the gardener with the tree. The tree is Israel. That's what it's always been. We're grafted into Israel. But we are, we Gentiles, white Western church and others, we are the younger brother that's being brought and invited into a table where there already is an older brother present. We have no right to condemn our older brother, in, who is our older brother in Christ, or imagine him disinherited just because we get to sit at the table. So those two words, participation and adoption. I'm sure there's lots of questions, but we're going to plow ahead, because now I want to start over a lot faster this time. Now we're going to do it in language of Trinitarian theology, all right? So we're going to tell the same story again. Um, uh, this, dear Bishop, I don't mean for this to be sacrilegious, but this is an absurd painting to me. It frustrates me. Uh, as beautiful it is, as it is in artistic value, how white are they, right? Uh, I mean, come on. Uh, anyway, uh, but I grew up with, I worked with a working imagination of um, tag team Trinitarian theology. Right. Uh, so if you're familiar with tag team wrestling, you have one guy in the ring and then at some point he can go over and tag somebody and he gets out and then the other person gets in. And this is how my theological imagination worked. Right. It was God, the father on the scene in all the Old Testament. And then he tagged Jesus who came in and he jumped in the ring. He wasn't there for very long, but boy, he was important. And then he tagged the spirit who jumped in the ring as Jesus went, and so now it's the spirit, right? Uh, so this kind of tag team theological imagination is the implicit Trinitarian theology, I think, of a lot of people. God the Father was around the work, uh, was around and worked back then, and you see, you see how it maps onto this telling of the story. Because I don't have to do with God the Father, I have to do with Jesus. Jesus is the turning point this great hinge. I separate the persons of the Trinity 
according to the ways in which it maps onto my inclusion so that I get the fullness of the Trinity finally and the Trinity's work. Um, we, so in this kind of scheme, Jesus is Jewish, but that's more or less accidental. The real thing is that he was God and the model man, so I can afford to paint him white. Or with African-American children, it's so frustrating how I, I can't find children's Bibles, or very few, where they have pictures where they're not white. That's an implicit, <laughs> anyway, uh, racism really, um, against this story. Uh, but I can't tell you how often I've come across this way of seeing the world in the scriptures. So let's first of all agree that this tag team idea is not only bunk, um, but very nearly, if not heretical, right? Uh, the separating of the persons of the Trinity in this way impose a scheme that the scriptures nowhere justify, and as we'll see in a minute, uh, is flatly denied. But I want to give common fit pitfalls that are, uh, I'm calling them sort of orthodox. This is why I'm choosing it. I'll, I'll let you guys, uh, the straight up heretical ones, I'm going to trust that you guys can be sensitive to these. I, I want to bring up a few that are sort of orthodox and so are easier. Um, but here's pitfall one, that the incarnation is an historical act, considered as historical act, is what makes knowledge of God possible. Uh, when I was a PhD student, I got into a public debate with Alan Torrance, who's a theologian at St. Andrews, a friend. He's, uh, it was a friendly debate. Uh, we like each other. But he comes, Alan Torrance comes from a great godly theological clan in Scotland, group of theologians. Um, he was making the case that the incarnation, by uniting humanity to deity, finally overcomes the divide that otherwise makes it impossible to know God. Now, there's a lot that sounds good. Um, whoops, okay, we're not there yet. Uh, there's not a lot that sounds good about the claim. Anything that exalts Christ is good. We can't have too much of that, absolutely. I'm really in favor of that. But you can see where I'm going to ask you to be sensitive, I think. What does this mean for all the saints before the Incarnation? And this is where Professor Torrance and I started uh, arguing. He tried eventually, he pushed, well, okay, well, it's a difference of degree. Well, but then you can't say it's by virtue of the historical act of the incarnation that it finally makes it possible, right? That would be a difference of kind of knowledge. And he didn't want to grant uh, that. Anyway, eventually he said he had to go back to the drawing board about some of this, but it illustrated to me how quickly we tend to dismiss the Hebrew Bible and the testimony of the saints. Moses knew God. He spoke with him face to face. Abraham knew God. Of course he did. But we sometimes let our theological ideas run away with us. Uh, I do think there are ways to salvage uh, Professor Torrance's claim, by the way. Uh, I think it's a good claim, uh, but we have to be careful how we frame it. And that's another conversation. 17th century, uh, there was a big push. Johann Cox, Coxius, argued there was no forgiveness of sins before the crucifixion and resurrection. Claim that would have shocked the psalmist, right? <laughs> would have shocked Nathan when he speaks to David, would have shocked David. Um, 
but it was built on the medieval idea of the limbus patronum, that the fathers of the ancient epoch are in limbo because we don't know what to do with them. Well, <laughs> uh, it undercuts Paul's argument in Romans 6, by the way, if we deny that David knew the forgiveness of sins. But of course he did. Of course they knew the forgiveness of sins. These ideas run, uh, I call it theology, run a, grabbing its own hand and running away with itself um, as it doesn't submit itself to a sensitivity around what this Holy Scriptures actually say. Because we don't have to denigrate Israel and her experience to glorify God's grace towards us. All right, pitfall two. I'm sure that brought up a lot of questions, but I'm moving on. Um, actually, I'm going to skip pitfall two. Uh, for time. Pitfall three, this is the basic denial that Jesus is Jewish. I find this one all the time, actually. Note that I don't say Jesus was Jewish. Everybody admits that. But that the flesh Jesus took into the divine reality was and remains Jewish in the same way that it was and remains male, right? It doesn't therefore mean only males are saved. It doesn't mean only Jews participate then in the deity. But the Jewishness of Jesus did not end at the crucifixion. It's precisely as his ongoing work as Israel's Messiah in the line promised to Abraham that all of humanity is being redeemed. Again, uh, all right pointed out the saints in heaven are not a de-ethnicized mass of humanity, right? They are still of every language, tribe, people, and nation. The resurrection doesn't do away with those things and didn't do away with those things in Christ. Um, I've quoted, I think I put a quote from J. Lewis Martin. Is that on the handout? Um, I forget, uh, or Boltman or somebody. There's all these guys. Uh, but Martin, uh, you can see this quote about the covenant with Abraham, it remains docetic until the resurrection, right? Well, what's missing here? <laughs> Israel, right? There is no place for Israel, and this is called the apocalyptic uh, Christ uh, approach. Israel, is, they're not participants in the covenant God made with Abraham? Really? I have to do away with that much of the Bible. Um, how it's not Marcion revived, I'm not sure. Um, but I'm arguing the exact opposite. Israel embodied. It was not docetic. Uh, docetic is the idea without a body, right? Disembodied and just kind of hanging out there. It wasn't just hanging out there. It was Yeshua coming as the climax. Um, and you'll, Dr. Bowen will help us understand, I think, why it's important to remember it's Yeshua. Um, even the language of Jesus doesn't help us as much as I wish it did. Um, but it's Yeshua coming as the climax of the promise to Israel that we should celebrate. All right, but now those are pitfalls, some positive notes. We all know the second person of the Trinity was very much a part of the active and active in the Hebrew Bible because our God is and always was triune and so unified in all of his works. That's basic Trinitarian theology. And I want to bring out some of the more striking uh, text where the apostles actually in their imaginations did far more than just kind of a general Trinitarian approach to that. 
one that I always love, whoops, oh, there we go. Uh, it's in John 12. Now, John is just quoted from Isaiah 6 to talk about the hardness of, those, of his hearers, couldn't understand him. Now, Isaiah 6, right, this is where Isaiah finds himself, excuse me, in the throne room of Yahweh, of the Lord, our God himself, so much so that he falls down, woe is me, I am undone, right? You remember that famous text. He's just quoted that and then says, Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. There's no other referent for the pronoun, so it's because he saw his glory and spoke of him. He's talking about Jesus. Ufta, right? Wow. John wants us to make that equation, that the Lord God in the heavenly temple is the one walking around. We should have gotten that from John's introduction, right? He tabernacled among us, right? So it's a good way to read John's gospel is you imagine the tabernacle, the presence of the Lord God walking around Israel. <laughs> uh, but you see the same idea, right? Yahweh is straightforwardly Jesus before he took on flesh. You see it throughout apostolic writings, right? Um, so Paul, 1 Corinthians 2, none of the rulers of this age understood this. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Who is the Lord of glory? Right? Do we stop and think about what is it for a Jewish man and theologian to use the epithet Lord of glory? Who is that? Who does he see Jesus as being? James uses the exact same phrase, uh, striking. Um, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Like we need to sit with just how phenomenal these statements are. You can't say that Jesus is any other than the God of Israel, the one whom they met. It's not that the God of whom we read in the Holy Scriptures is only the second person of the Trinity, but the way that they read it, sometimes it seems like economically, the one we chiefly have to do, that second person who took on flesh was the one who came to Sinai and shook Sinai. My favorite place to seeing this, though, I know I said that about John. I have lots of favorite places. Um, like my children, I have two favorite children. Uh, this is from Jude, okay? Jude says, now I want, he's in warning believers in Jesus, in Yeshua. I want to remind you that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, right? He's encouraging us, don't forsake the faith. Jesus, who saved a people. Now I have notes on the handout. Um, a lot of the Greek texts that you'll buy will say that the Lord who saved a people out of Egypt, and some translations follow that. Um, every, uh, all of the textual evidence is Jesus here, all of it. There's just a few where you have Lord, and quite obviously, you know, I have Bruce Metzger quoted on the handout. The only reason they don't put it in is because they don't find it quite uh, it's just too astonishing. That's not a good reason to not go with the text, okay? <laughs> kind of textual criticism 101. That's not a good reason because I'm not sure it seems unlikely to me. doesn't mean you get to change it, okay? Uh, 
the text says that Jesus saved the people out of the land of Egypt. This is Mark Chagall's famous painting of the Exodus, and I love it. It conflates all of this stuff. Mark Chagall was the man honored the Jewish tradition because he was a part of it. Um, great painter. Anyway, uh, in other words, the mean God, the Father who was at Sinai, that was Jesus who brought them up and led them by the hand. And then whose presence was so striking that it caused the mountain to shake and no one was allowed to touch it lest they die, right? That was Jesus. So take that moment the hum and then put it the other way. It was the same person who was at Sinai, the one whom angels fear to look at, right? They have six wings and only two they use to fly because two they cover their face and two their feet, right? It was that Jesus at Sinai, that same Lord, who was willing to take on flesh and to be mocked by soldiers who made minimum wage as they spat on him. Right? So do it either way you want to do it. We have to be overcome with wonder. Um, and I think the apostles were. So that's the other way of telling the same story. It was the triune God, Jesus, Yeshua, who became, who took on flesh, who bound himself to Israel, and so is the glory of Israel. Right? Um, Um, yeah, so I want to summarize, like, we need to go back, <laughs> Luke frames how we should read Jesus by the songs that he puts in at the outset of his book, and the songs that he puts, we read them and know them, we say them every day, right, in the daily prayers, the Magnificat of Mary, the particularity, the glory is that God has come and helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Right? That's how Luke wants us to read the story of Jesus. Zechariah, I underline filled with the Holy Spirit here because I've heard so many people say, well, this is before he understood the fullness of what Jesus did. Well, maybe. Um, I'm not sure I understand the fullness of what Jesus did for us. Uh, but it was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit speaking. Luke has no other stronger way of giving full authority. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, Israel. Raise up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke, right? that we should be saved from our enemies, sorry, uh, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. Right? Salvation to the Jew first is not just an accident of history. It's what Israel was living within, the climax and glory of which was fully seen with the incarnation, absolutely. That doesn't take away the status, the identity of Israel, and that we get to participate in it as Gentiles now that the fullness of time has come because 
the king of Israel sits on his throne, and now the reign stretches over all the earth, the great prophetic hope that we find in the prophets and the Psalms, right? We get to be brought in as those untimely born. Um, all right, we have 20 minutes for questions. I'm, I'm going to do just one, uh, just touch on the last of the payoffs. There's lots of payoffs. One is it decenters the Western European church. Oops, that was my last slide. All right, I'll stop sharing that. Uh, one is that it decenters the white Western church, right? We come in as the younger brother. We have an elder brother. We have an elder brother. We're adopted into a family where there's already a brother there. Um, and I think that actually does play out into making the absurdity of uh, implicit racism pretty uh, significant. Anyway, so that's one. But the last, the application that I love is, um, I want us to see the whole of the scriptures, the whole of the scriptures, to stop dividing it up as that's the old, this is the new. <laughs> Say, actually, this whole thing, I'm brought into this story. I can claim Abraham as my father. Yes, adopted, but that doesn't make my son less of my son. I'm not less his father because adopted. <laughs> that's a glory to glory in being adopted into a family that already has an older brother who has been called by God. And so the entirety of the scriptures, you don't have to make it Christian. I call it uh, the where's Waldo hermeneutic of the Old Testament, right? Uh, the where's Jesus? And if you're really clever, then you find him in all these hidden kinds of places, right? It's that where's Waldo idea. Um, uh, well, Actually, look for where it says L-O-R-D, and there's Jesus. It's like the world's worst Where's Waldo book. Like, he's everywhere, right? He's everywhere. I don't have to create him out of somewhere. I don't have to Christianize it. I just have to read it and to hear it. And there are differences and changes and movements, but that was true for moving from Abraham to Moses to Hannah to, uh, yes, okay, we can grant all that. But what I'm after here is this idea recovering the glory of what it is to be Israel so that we have our own humility and acknowledge and long for our elder brother to enter into the fullness itself. Just like we long for the fullness of Gentiles to be brought in, we want the fullness of the Jews to be brought in because God himself bound. And let's be honest, Paul says, talks about wanting the church to be jealous, wanting the Jews to be jealous because of the engrafting of Gentiles. How has the church acted and treated Israel and the Jews? Do you imagine that they are going to be jealous because of the way we have spoken and acted, right? Not going to happen. And so if we want the fullness of God's kingdom to come, I'm convinced that we have to start undoing that story. And it is. It's a lot of academic work among evangelical and strong scholars who are uh, pursuing this line. Um, but, all right, I'll stop there. So we have some time for questions. Okay, wow, Father Josh, that was uh, just remarkable. We're so grateful for all that you brought in. And I, I know you, 
it's always hard for you guys that have done years of work to try to <laughs> to try to. So I I definitely want you and Tommy to know as well as John and others that um, we're going to find more and more symposiums where we can give you all the places to unfold these things, not just in an hour, hour and a half, but over the course of time. I'm, I I feel that urgency. So thank you for doing that really hard work for us. Um, I think Matt had a question and Lydia, maybe we'll start with those two. And um, let's go till 1040, then we'll take a 20 minute break um, because I can promise you that Dr. Bohm will be no less um, a rich and voluminous uh, fire hose. Um, so I wanna make sure we get a little brain break as we then re-engage Dr. Boehm. So let's go ahead and uh, take 15 minutes of questions. Matt, why don't you start and then Lydia and then whomever after that. Okay. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Moon, for that lecture. Um, so I've written out my questions um, here. So I'll just read from, from that. So I've been grateful to, for this turn within contemporary Christian theology towards a reckoning with Israel and the reality that being grafted into Israel is not replacing Israel. But I'm not sure where this rediscovery leaves us. For example, consider your Rudolf Boltmann quote in which Boltmann assumes that a Christian text would look like framing Jesus in such a way that he makes a new and decisive difference in our relation to God. I take it that you've included this quote to draw our attention to the possibility that in fact, the salvation offered in Jesus is not radically new from the salvation offered to the Jewish people. So two related questions. First, does this mean that Jewish Christian dialogue is not interreligious dialogue? And then second, related, what does it mean to evangelize Jewish people? Um, I mean, it might be nice to proclaim to Jewish people that the Messiah they are eagerly awaiting has in fact already come but as far as being able to relate to God, I'm not sure what Jesus offers that that's new for Jewish people. And I'll just copy and paste those questions into the chat. So uh, that you have no, them. Yeah, that's great. So uh, the second one, I'm actually going to punt. I would like to hear that kind of question from Dr. Boehm. Um, so somebody who, who can answer it from the inside, I can give my thoughts on it, but uh, I think, the first step towards that is rediscovering our own humility, um, which would go a long way because the Jewish communities that I've uh, had the privilege of being parts of, um, they're raised on the stories of Christian abuse. And you can imagine like Jim Crow, right? Something we're all sensitive around. You can imagine what it would be like in Mississippi and Alabama and what it is like sometimes if those who are in authority don't actually acknowledge that they did anything really all that wrong. They wish it didn't get as far as it did. That's not going to go very far, right? So I think in some ways, the first step is humility, but uh, the positive construction. As for the interreligious dialogue, uh, I think sometimes we get hung up on terms like religious. Uh, we start imagining that it means something more than it does. Um, it, I don't like the thinking that a religion is a self-contained kind of thing, a way of life or a way of thinking or a way uh, that that's why I love like in the early church, right? It's just the way, haderech. Like even that is very much out of the Hebrew scriptures. Haderech uh, Adonai, the way of the Lord. That's where the phrase comes from. Um, where actually what we're wanting them to do is just like anybody else. 
the kingdom of God is here. Look, uh, live into it. And we call Gentiles into it as complete strangers, but I think we call Jews into it as those who, this is, this is your rightful inheritance. And there's a humility of me, a Gentile, calling you into it um, that might be hard to take. But uh, does that make sense? So it doesn't answer. It's just saying, uh, I think it's not interreligious. Uh, I don't think that category helps us very far. Um, so we can talk about, here's where I think a lot of people get hung up is um, what Paul talks about is having, keeping Torah without faithfulness to God is absurd, right? We can grant that. And faithfulness to God by denying what God has done on our behalf is absurd. And so you cannot follow Torah properly and deny Jesus as the Messiah, right? So you have that progression. Faithfulness to Torah means faith, faithfulness to God. That's prior. Um, and so what we're calling them to is actually a faithfulness to the God who bound himself to their forefathers. Um, but again, the humility, like you can, even by saying that, I'm like, oh man, it takes a lot of humility to, to do that. Uh, but still, I think it can be done. So anyway, there's my non-answer. Good. <laughs> and Lydia, yeah. Um, yes. Hi, uh, Dr. Moon. Thank you so much for this lecture. Um, my question is related to Matt's, but framed slightly differently. Um, I've gradually been growing in understanding and appreciation of God's work in Israel and how that's a continuous um, a continuous line throughout history and really appreciate um, just the reminder that every time I see Lord in the Old Testament, that's Jesus working there. I'm wondering though, the question that I keep getting hung up on is if Jesus has been present, and in fact, all, all three members of the Trinity have been present throughout all of, all of history, what was the significance of the incarnation, death and resurrection theologically um, and then practically, and this is where it connects with Matt's question, practically, like, how does that affect a Jew's relationship to the Lord in terms of religious practice? And how does that affect a Gentile's relationship to the Lord? Um, and from your thesis on your first page of the handout, I'm reading that um, the Messianic work of Jesus expands um, expands our access to the Lord from, from Judaism to the nations. Um, but that perhaps is an incorrect reading. I'm just wondering like what happened when, when Jesus came and did something change? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, right. So this is a complex, there's lots of aspects of this question and it's common. It's a common question to this, um, uh, is it significant? It has absolute, utter cosmic significance. Like there is no way to overstate the significance of God taking on flesh and coming. There is no way to overstate it. Uh, there's ways to misstate it, but there's no way to overstate it. Um, it is the ground by which, right? So the author of Hebrews, the, bulls, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. He doesn't say no longer takes away sin. 
is that they could never take away sin. Well, does that mean they didn't have forgiveness of sins? No, of course not. He knows better than that. It means, uh, again, using Hebrews, the language of shadows and realities um, there, what you have is the blood being taken into the heavenly places, which is, that's the throne room of God, right? And so the blood of bulls and goats participate, this is sacramental theology, it participates in it before it happened in some ways. Um, we participate in it after it happened. But again, the before, after, um, right, this is where we invoke, what does it mean to talk about the Trinity's relationship to time? And we can get into phrases like the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, right? Um, but so to me, it's, it is the thing on which everything stands. Absolutely everything stands and falls on that reality of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So its significance is absolutely entire. Its significance uh, in the temporal mold is an interesting one. I think there is kind of what Augustine talks about, the mutatio sacramentorum. There is a, a change of sacraments of sorts. There are sacraments that we participate in as Gentiles um, and that of course, uh, so I was just reading, just read through Alexander Schmemann's book on the Eucharist. Um, some of you have probably read it or heard of it. Uh, it's an outstanding book. I love it. There's so much in it I love. It's an Eastern Orthodox. But somehow he goes through the entire book without referencing Passover. <laughs> right? Uh, and we get this thinking. It comes out of the Passover. I see this in liturgical theology all the time. It comes out of the Passover. No, it doesn't. It is a Passover meal, like <laughs> it doesn't come out of it, like it's the fruit of that thing, or those are the roots and this is the blossom. Like, no, it just is a Passover meal. It's our way of participating in a Passover meal, actually. Um, so it's, it's things like that, that we just have to be careful in how we say it. Um, the most obvious thing, right, the apostles, you don't ever get a line like, now that the Holy Spirit has come, uh, your life should be easy, you know? Uh, so follow the faith of the fathers and it should be even easier now because you have the spirit. You never get that kind of a fortiori argument. If it was true for them, how much more for you? You would think somebody would say it at least once, but you don't get the argument. Um, so I think we have to be very careful in how we frame some of those things. Um, but anyway, does that, I'm, I'm. Yeah, no, that, that's really helpful. So would you say that our relationship to God, Gentile or Jew, is pretty much the same throughout all of history and the incarnation could have happened anywhere and affected the entirety yeah. of history equally? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, that's speculating more than I, I think I feel comfortable with. Um, because I don't want the crucifixion, the incarnation to become ideas, right? Um, it's not an, Christianity is not an idealist religion. It is very much about this world, about God actually coming in flesh, walking out of the tomb in flesh, taking that flesh with him into the Trinity, into the eternal life of the Godhead. But that's the eternal life of the Godhead. So again, we get this. I can't explain any aspect of the timeless trying God's interaction with time, like within time, I can't explain any of that 
actually. Uh, we just say, eh, uh, <laughs> he does, absolutely does. He has the full freedom to do it. And it was the fullness of time by his reckoning. And now within the fullness of time, the stretch of the kingdom of God as the psalmist longed for, as you see in Zechariah, uh, goes to the ends of the earth. That's the messianic reign, bringing the kingdom of God, that circle. So in that graph where I have that circle, that circle expands to the entirety of the earth. And those who refuse it are kind of shown the door is the easy way of saying it. Okay, well, um, this circle is expanding. And I'm sorry if you get in the way of that and refuse it, but it is expanding to encapsulate the entirety of the world. So what's changed? Well, that, right? That's a huge change. And that's actually the change that every page of the New Testament uh, traces <laughs> the conflict about uh, is that. Uh, that's the big change that makes everybody nervous and that makes Paul an enemy. So, um, Dr. Moon, can I ask a, a question of clarification for your answer yeah, to Lydia? Yeah, uh, I'm not sure I understand how your answer answers her question because I understood her to be asking what is the significance of the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus. And it seems like you're asserting that it has cosmic significance, but I still don't feel like I get why it has cosmic significance. Yeah. Okay. Let me let me try again. I want to I want to divide two layers, and they aren't separate layers, but different ways of thinking. One is kind of that theological reality, and that's what I mean about being in the heavens, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Like it has absolute. It is the ground on which the promise to Abraham stands, right? The call of Abram is a call into the life. I will be your God. You will be my people, which is the promise of incarnation, ultimately, and the fruit of what happens with the incarnation, right? So without the incarnation, not, without God acting for the sake of his people. So that's kind of that theological. And in some ways, yes, that's loosening temporal things. I'm okay with that when we're talking about the triune God. Like it's, I'm okay just saying, look, there are mysteries here that there is no way to comprehend. Uh, we know, right? So Einsteinian theory that's been proven pretty accurate. Uh, time works different even within our created world. So if I can't understand that, how in the world, you know, somebody outside the created world uh, imposing himself within it. So that theological everything stands and falls on the work of the triune God redeeming his people. And then, and then there's the temporal side where what we actually see is God taking the throne, right? So that's the language of the Messiah, the Mashiach. God took the throne of David himself. God was always the rightful king of Israel. Tom Wright, N.T. Wright has this book, When God Became King, which is a great book about the Gospels, but I hate the title because <laughs> God was always king. Read the Psalms. Like the Lord is king is pretty common. Uh, so it's not God finally became, but it is God taking on the throne of the Messiah on earth. So, and teasing out all of that stuff, I'm not sure sometimes how to do it all, but it is the obvious point is the expansion then of the kingdom of God to include the whole of the earth um, through the power of the spirit. So if what you're saying is that all the promises of 
um, all the promises to Abraham, everything, and even the sacrificial system, all of that actually hangs upon the coming of Jesus. And that's why... Well, hangs upon the work of, yeah, I would say hangs upon the work of the Triton God in Christ. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. They're all yes and amen in Christ, right? Yeah. Josh, I know we just have a couple of minutes. Thank you for this. But um, if, if we can, and just I want to put this up to just so you can speak to it a little bit. But on page four of your notes, that second pitfall, the incarnation as divine plan B, right? An emergency issue in light of sin. Can you just speak to that a little bit? Because I think theologically and hermeneutically for what you're talking about, it's so important. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to do that. Let me pull up my notes on that. Um, so there's two parts of that pitfall. Um, the one I was actually going for, so on the one hand, it's uh, kind of the superlapsarian kinds of discussions. Um, it says God saw, and there are two ways this happens. One is kind of the standard, we don't have to worry about Israel. God saw that sin came into the world and then decided to become incarnate, uh, right? Well, God is pure act. I mean, you know, God doesn't have this separation of we deliberate and then act. God doesn't have a separation of deliberating and acting. He always is. Uh, and that's the simplicity of God. So there's, it makes no sense theologically, but it's also sometimes put forward, and this is where Tom Wright, as, as much as he's an ally in a lot of what I've just said, um, he likes to talk about the language of Israel's role was to bring redemption to the world. They didn't, and Jesus comes as the fulfillment of Israel. So then it's like a plan C. Um, Israel's role wasn't to bring redemption to the world. It was to live faithfully within the redemption that the triune God was bringing to the world. So that's, so both of those, I want to, anyway, John, that's my brief. Yeah. I think we're at time, but. Uh, Go ahead, Will, I, I ask your last question and then, and then we'll take a break. Thank you, Bishop. Thank you so much, uh, Father Moon, for that really rich teaching. Uh, just a quick side note before I get to my question. I, I never thought of the, the parable of the prodigal son as speaking to uh, the Jew and Gentile relationship. Um, so thank you. That was a really interesting paradigm shift, thinking about that parable. Um, going off of uh, Deacon John's question, I know I've heard some who are trying to sort of correct the supersessionist tendency in um, Christian thought to, rather than talking about replacement, trying to talk about uh, Jesus recapitulating uh, the story of Israel. Um, do you think that that's a helpful term? Um, or do you think in some ways that that is still a little bit too close to um, like the plan B or plan C approach to viewing the role of Israel in salvation history? Yeah, well, that's a great question. It's a really great question. Um, I, I, I'm just going to give my personal take on it. Again, my field is Hebrew Bible. Um, so I, which doesn't mean I never read the Gospels, but uh, it just, I get nervous a little bit around the language of recapitulation for that reason. Um, I think what you have, you have like uh, Dale Allison has a great book on Matthew with this, you know, um, and Jesus has the new Israel and so on. Um, what I wonder if, Actually, a better way of seeing it is it's 
recapitulating the story of Israel to show Jesus is fully Israel. He is fully Jewish. Like uh, it is, it's not recapitulating as now a new one's come on the scene, but it's recapitulating, which again might not be the best. He is living out the story of Israel himself because he is fully Jewish, fully Israel, right? So you can see there's a fine distinction between those two. But I think that's what you're pointing out is there is a distinction between those two. Um, and so Jesus living out in himself the story of Israel, not because Israel had to be redone, but to show that he is coming um, within that context as the Messiah of Israel. So anyway. Thank you. That's, That's my suggestion. So.